One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jennifer Groats, author of the poetry collection Still Falling. I think earlier in my poetry life, I sometimes did feel that I should censor or I wasn't so interested in trying to write about myself or my my history or my childhood. Um, I I had sort of you know, different poetic ambitions. We'll be back with Jennifer Groats after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made... Well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. 
With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with poet Jennifer Groats, author of four poetry collections, including Window Left Open, the Needle, and Cusp. She is also a translator from the French and Polish, and her co-translation of Jerzy Fikowski's Everything I Don't Know received the Penn Award for Best Book of Poetry in Translation in 2022. Groats is a professor at the University of Rochester, and she directs the Breadloaf Writers Conferences. Her new collection, Still Falling, traverses the landscape of loss all the way to its extremities, Her writing explores grief while being fully alive and the moments of transcendence that exist within grief, as well as the feeling of intimate loss. The poems reflect midlife transitions, grace, wisdom, and compassion, as well as bewilderment and astonishment for that which is unknowable. We began the discussion with me asking Jennifer Groats this question. So I wanted to start probably with kind of a big question, um, with still falling it's so much about grief. And I'm wondering when you go to the page and you feel that much grief and poems may take you a long time. Like how do you, how do you sort of regulate the emotion and how does that interplay with the craft of trying to get a poem right that might be born from emotion, but also has a very cognitive element to creation? Um, that's a really fascinating and big question. Um, and it has sort of answer to it in the way that it was asked, I think, too, which is you're absolutely right. There's a lot of sort of radioactive, just intense emotion in, in the book, um, particularly grief. And partly because um, my own autobiographical circumstances in the past five or so years of just sort of losing a lot of people. Um, which happens as we, if if we're lucky, we live long enough. <laughs> um, but also the pandemic, frankly, um, I think contributed to that too. Um, I don't think I was the only person who was having a rough past few years um, and losing people who were close. But, you know, it is super helpful to be able to bring, to do what to do with, what what one does with one's emotions sort of makes a big difference in how one survives them. Um, and I feel really lucky as a poet that I've been able to, that I have the tools of poetry to sort of examine in a more neutral way, to record and set down and and then shape, as you're suggesting, that sort of have, um, have something put down on paper and then to be able to go back to it over time and make meaning from it, understand it and and shape it into something that's either beautiful beautiful or true or has some sort of purpose that um that is goes beyond what the original suffering was. Um, to me that feels I wouldn't say it's therapeutic, but it it's intensely gratifying um that that hap- that that happens as opposed to just sort of wallowing in grief. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but maybe starts. I think it's so fascinating how grief works because first of all, it's a mystery. I don't think you can track it. And I think it 
for a lot of people, it comes in waves and, um, it's just, it's as big as the ocean, you know, which you talk about the ocean a lot in your poetry, but I'm wondering if, if when you write about grief, what does that do to the feeling itself? Hmm. Well, grief is really mysterious and sort of all encompassing. And it doesn't, I mean, it's sort of like poetry in that it, it resists being defined or contained. Um, it, it resists um, happening in time in the way that we want it to. Um, you know, there there's no really acceptable or unacceptable way to grieve. There's no time period where, you know, expiration date to it. Um, and there can be, you know, days of intense joy and then it hits you again like a black, you know, wall, like a monolith. Um, so so it's it's truly mysterious um, as to whether or not the, the part of the question about whether or not how it changes after one makes something or starts to write about it. Um, I don't think it does. Um, but what I what I do what I do think poems can help me have helped me do the ones that I where I've, I've poured grief into them. They have helped me. I don't know, have the sensation that the load has been set down for a minute. Um, you, you know, that Jack Gilbert poem where he talks about um, grief. Des- he describes the death of his uh, mourning, the death of his wife, Michiko, um, like carrying a very heavy box and never being able to set it down and sort of the way in which it keeps being shifted on his back or the way he holds it. And I actually do feel like a poem helps me sometimes just set it down for a few minutes. Um, and then I pick it back up and and keep walking. You talk about in there, and we, we can talk about this specific poem more, but you have a poem in there where you're talking about story and poetry and how when you were young, your mom told you that stories have an ending I don't know if she said anything to you about poetry, but you were contemplating in in there about poems having endings too, but maybe they're different. And I'm curious if you feel when you write poems, like what you think about endings, like do they have to go to a specific place? How do you, how do you know when a poem is ended? Um, I know that's a big question. That is the big question. Yeah, that that poem that poem's called Poem or Story, and it it's about I describe it as my early genre anxiety, which which I did have. It is an autobiographical poem. My mother did tell me that stories had endings, and so I had decided poems um, must be middles, and the poem sort of meditate meditates on what what a middle is. I think the way poems end really one of the most important parts of a poem um and the way I choose to end poems it depends on the poem sometimes you can hear an ending you know as you're writing along or composing along or revising along you just hear it um and in that poem poem or story um I just arrive on a certain line and I real it, it's like a click you know that it's the end of the poem um but you know another poet who actually influenced this book as well, um, A.R. Ammons. He has this really influential essay um, called A Poem is a Walk that you you may or may not know. I recommend it if you don't know it. And as its title suggests, he's he's arguing in this essay that um, the similarities between poems and walks. And one of the things that he says a poem and a walk always have uh, is, is that they return. Um, they go out somewhere and then they return. Um, and I think that's another way to make that's useful to think about what an ending, how poems in particular end. That it's maybe not that they don't, they don't necessarily circle, um, although you see that sometimes in a structure, but they go someplace and they at the end of a poem, there is a sense of a return, even if it's to the top of the poem, back to the title. Endings are really mysterious, it's, it, and I think it, this is similar for fiction too. But I don't have experience in making enough fiction to be able to talk with, about whether or not those challenges and pleasures are similar. 
I like that idea of a return because even if it is a a return, like mm-hmm. that you are yeah. you are still not going to the same place. It's like the river the the river is never the same water twice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it looks the same, but because you've had experience of reading that whole poem, you're not going to ever return to the same place because you are different because you have read it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could read the poem Incantation, because that's one that I feel is like a little bit of a journey. Um, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, it is another one of these uh, grief poems, too. This is called Incantation, as you as you said. I know that to find you, I will have to leave the earth and go out. As I left my lamplit room and its clicking electric baseboards to enter this wood quivering with beaches and wild turkeys and cereal colored leaves, have to leave my life that has become so small and inevitable and my gratitude that gets chiseled down and grows back again into the stillness, the windless calm, into such loneliness the blue sky, the heartbreak indigo, undifferentiated as darkness, untouchable, unarrivable, traveling through it, then simply not into the nowhere, the no more, the imagination. Down here is where I lost you, somewhere beneath low swinging stoplights and the desert's granulated sunset that settled in one's eyes and hair. Sunset you could taste from the wind carrying smells of the stockyard and the ground pushing up the sharp fluorite rocks that cut our tanned legs. That palimpsest of a landscape, every return depositing or wiping clear another memory of that street we so desolately wandered. Oh, my lost little brother, I will look until I find you. I have some things to to ask you about that. Is there anything you wanted to say before I did? Well, it's interesting, just since I was just talking about ailments, I wrote this poem after reading um, Ammons's poem, Easter Morning, that's also about a lost brother. And I think he he's also hovering in some of these lines. I don't know if there's if this poem has a return exactly, but it is a return in the sense that it's returning to childhood and this original wound or loss. But it's interesting to me that I that I also think of it as an incantation or a song or a spell or uh yeah uh, the the title of it um interests me <laughs> even though i i made the title i'm interested in that mm. did your brother die when you were young my brother um did not die when i was young but um he died when he w- was just turning 33 and i was 35 um, and he was my only sibling, my younger brother. But we had a pretty um, we had a pretty troubled childhood, singular childhood in in West Texas, um, which the landscape is in this poem um, there at the end. Um, and there was this sense, and you know, this is in lots of my poems throughout my books because he's a, a character who recurs. Um, of a sort of big sister trying to take care of a little brother in a in a sort of troubled world and with um, limited means. Mm-hmm. So that that is definitely, I think, there, and it's 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 present much earlier in my work. What I felt from this poem, and I love that word incantation too. It's like this spell. It's like a trans. It's something that has a trans formative or transportive element to it and so I read this poem kind of as a journey poem in the sense that I felt like where I started when you're in the woods with beaches and wild turkeys and cereal colored leaves I envisioned myself on the east coast in the fall 
And then as you're moving into the darkness and the indigo sky that's like inseparable from darkness, I almost felt like I was passing through like some kind of portal that night provides. And then I ended up in the desert with you and your grief was carrying you to all these different places and you are starting off. I know that to find you, I will have to leave the earth and go out and then the end, I will look until I find you. So it feels like that return to me, but that the journey was vast to get there. Yeah, I, I will say this was a very poignant poem to write. I wrote you, you got the landscape exactly right. I wrote it at McDowell, <laughs> McDowell Colony in the fall, um, in the late, late fall. I, and it was it, that exactly as described going out and taking a walk and this sense of the poem as a journey, as you say, also the poem, the, the poem is realizing one is what one is seeking something and, and querying what that is. But I, I had no idea. These are some of the strangest lines I've ever written. That sort of description where you talk about entering the portal uh, or, or going um into this this realm of the imagination which is really death and and the after world afterlife um and that how that somehow transports me and the reader right back in west texas um and and that childhood landscape as well um yeah i think you give a really beautiful reading of the poem We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. It's so interesting that it's not a secret. It's, you know, something that's known that at the end of their, our lives, our memories always often go back to the beginning, which is mm-hmm. what, you know, I didn't know that you were raised in Texas, but I could feel that desert. And it makes me think of everything from like Tobias's wolf's story bullet in the brain when he's about to die and goes back to that memory from childhood to so many of your poems in here that have this mixture of the East Coast woods with with something else. And I'm wondering if in your state of grief that you've been in, it's pulling you back to childhood in a way that you hadn't been before or not. I think it definitely has. I think partly that's also been, frankly, because some of the deaths that I've been mourning were my parents, um, and most recently my mother um, in 2019, uh, right before the pandemic. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I had, you know, we were a small family, and I'm now the only member of it who's still alive. And so I think it's interesting to sort of walk around, to be me and realize, to walk around and, and, and have these memories. I think they surface more urgently because they do want to be written down or, or I feel this, this charge to, uh, at least not to censor myself, to use them, these details from my life, um, because no one else will remember them otherwise. And they are a, a big part of who I am. I think earlier in my poetry life, I sometimes did feel that I should censor or I wasn't so interested in trying to write about myself <laughs> or my my history or my childhood. Um, I, I had sort of 
you know, different poetic ambitions. But now that feels like precious material to me that um, I definitely uh, make use of. And it also feels, um, I mean, I wouldn't say obsessive, but almost not um, up for discussion. Um, I feel like we're actually pretty naive sometimes when we think we can decide what we're going to write about. Um, I think, you know, what we write about just sort of decides for us. Yeah, childhood is a bigger thing. You're right. I didn't really, I hadn't really thought about it for this book until you pointed that out. But it is more present than it's been probably since my very first poems. I'm curious about your poem, All the Little Clocks Wind Down, because now you you telling me that you are the only one from your family unit still alive, which I'm I'm so sorry for that experience. I'm I'm sure there's many people where, you know, if you don't die first, that's gonna be your experience. I think this poem was in a magazine recently and a friend of mine sent it to me. Um from from Warren Wilson actually, where I went to school and, and you taught and she sent it to me and when she sent it to me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have her on the show. I love this poem. And the thing that really struck me about this poem is that you used your name in it. And mm-hmm. in towards the bottom, you say, darkness, my name is Jennifer Groats, and I am almost ready to confess I was reckless and careless and selfish with my life. And that was my favorite point, like where you named yourself, like my, my heart, like I lost my breath. I was like, oh. It's just so personal, um, and I'm really curious about that. But also having you tell me that you are the last one in your family makes this feel even more important to me. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I'm curious about that. And if you want to talk about other elements of this poem, we can. Um, no, I'm, that that's all really interesting. I have a poem in my second book, The Needle, um, which is the book, the first book I finished after my brother died. Um, he died in 2006 and the needle didn't come out, I don't think until 2011, maybe. But um, there's a handful of my first elegies for my brother in that book. And one of them is a really small poem called The Eldest. And it's very short and it's, it goes something like when my brother died, you know, this, this and this. But one of the things it's, it says at the very end is I realized my mother would also die. And so would my father and I would be the last one. And that that's been a sort of poetic realization I've carried with me for a while. And so it is sort of a return or a culmination to go back to that Ammons um, trope or, or argument in this book to have written myself toward being the eldest in every way. And now the the only extant one, Um, as far as that poem, all the clocks, all the little clocks wind down. um, It's, it is a pretty intense, um, sad poem. And I'm stealing some stuff. I mean, I, I, I steal a lot of stuff in these poems from other uh, writers in this book, partly because of the grief that I'm processing. Um, the poems very much maybe out of a sort of loneliness. And again, this I think also comes from writing during the pandemic that I sort of started to redefine, uh, what a poem was for me or could be for me and that it, it became less a sort of lyrical individual utterance or a work of you know, stunning originality, you know, these things that we might hope for, our, we tend to hope for our work. And instead, I wanted it to become, I wanted poems to be um, locations for connection to other writers, ways to talk to the dead, to talk to people that I couldn't talk to otherwise, um, and to make connection, to to notice um, the interrelation of, of, of various components of people, poetry, life. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, Walt Whitman poem, a little poem called A Noiseless Patient Spider, uh, that I really love. And he does, in it, he describes the, a spider sending forth filament after filament. Um, and he likens that to his, so, oh, my soul, um, also this sort of seeking connection, um, so, uh, in, in any case, 
all the little clocks wind down um, is really influenced by a poem by Dennis Johnson. And, uh, and I note that in the notes at the end. And he actually has a, a line like that where he says, my name is Dennis Johnson. Um, and so I sort of stole that or, or borrowed that. And it is a good way to sort of call yourself out on, you know, just say something very true at the moment. Um, and that line of being reckless and careless with my life, it's interesting, you know, after my brother died, it, it reorganized my life in the sense that watching my parents grieve a child um, was, was really painful. Um, and it made me realize that no matter how self-destructive I was or, or depressed or reckless and careless with my life, I had to outlive them. I had to stay alive so that they would never have to do that again. Um, and so I think that that line is also resonating for me um, in connection to that, this, this, the preciousness of, of our lives and, um, but also the very hard tasks sometimes to, uh, to stay alive and to fulfill um, all the possibilities of life. Though I do think other poems are examples of that as well. I think there's a balance of poems in the book, but that one's one of the darkest for sure. Do you mean that the other poems are example of more the exhilaration of being alive? What do you mean by that? Yeah, and the gratitude um, and the pleasure um, or connection. I mean, I do think, uh, I was just talking about this with someone else recently that I do think that the sort of pleasure and beauty of life and this and one's successes in life um, tend to happen, you know, simultaneously with the worst things that that happen. Um, and one of the sort of bewildering things about being a human is how one balances all of that or or attends and and honors all of that um, at the same time. It's it's really something. It is. I mean, there's so much, I think, you know, often, especially for poets, and I think it's a tradition, there's so much gratitude or just paying attention to the natural world. Um, so many of your poems are, well, so many of them name the month and describe the month. So there's seasonality in what's going on outside. There's also a lot of weather there's snow and cold and ice and rain and then there's the dryness of the desert and the sun and the ocean so I, I mean I can't go back and recite every single poem but I, I don't think there's many poems in here that don't have nature in them hmm. I think I think that's a, a good observation and I love that you notice the sort of snowy darkness contrasted with the desert and the bright light because I I did intend that um well once I noticed it myself um I did sort of organize it a little bit to be thinking about the chiaroscuro or the contrast of light and dark um that's in that Caravaggio painting that's in the middle of the book um and and exactly to to sort of um, enact what what I was just talking about that com that the combination of of light and dark and good and bad that seems to um, happen simultaneously um, in life. Also, you're right about observing nature. Um, I am really sort of passionate about that and and get great solace um, from looking at the world. But that's also something I've probably stolen from from Elizabeth Bishop of uh, rather than sort of looking inward, um, instead taking pleasure, aiming for the, the objective world, describing the objective world and letting it sort of speak to me. Um, that's very exciting to me. Do you feel that the natural world has a transporting quality when you either include it or when it's sort of juxtaposed with your emotional life? For me, it does. Um, 
I think the natural world is the is you know is endlessly beautiful um, and and calming, but it's also dangerous and indifferent to some of our our morals um, and wild. Um, you know, I don't remember the name of the biologist, but there was a biologist who died. It was now several years ago of breast cancer, and she was uh, she studied nature. She wrote a piece about the wild wildness and what that was. She um, camped and hiked and um, explored wilderness. And her her sort of working definition as she was dying of cancer was that the what the wild is where the presence of death is. Um, you know. Uh, that danger and that sort of that out of control um uh an, a landscape or an atmosphere that that is beyond one's control um and where death cannot be avoided and that's nature too i think that's important to remember yeah it makes me think a little bit of your poem now i see through a glass darkly that is winter and frozen and at the very end so you're describing this frozen river and you're looking at the bubbles and trapped underneath and it's very at first it's kind of destabilizing because a little bit because of the title it says now I see through a glass darkly so when I start reading I'm thinking of a glass or a mirror and you say frozen melted refrozen the dull gray dark lurking inside it bubbles and trapped and opaque cataracts with translucent edges it fascinates too much watching the river freeze so then I'm like okay she's talking about a river and you have this beautiful line about um, um, it starts along the banks the reeds frozen upright and ice scalloping each side slowly reaching towards the center like fingers covering eyes the river slowly going blind I loved that was like one of my favorite lines in the whole um, collection but then you end it and you say more and more I pay attention to what's not there, not there or in the dark. I don't want to be certain. Don't let me see. Whatever I see, either the world is broken or I am. So I wanted to ask you about that sense of certainty and paying attention and kind of what what you meant in all of that. Well, the poem says <laughs> it says what it says what it means, I suppose. Um, you that's you read it very um beautifully and it is another poem. I live in Rochester, New York, um, and I teach at the university. My house is on the other side of the Genesee River. So I cross that the Genesee River every day when I walk to school. And in the winter, that river does freeze, and it is fascinating to watch the process of that. Um and if you are a poet that lives in Rochester, New York, uh, ice and snow are, are <laughs> will make their way into your your poems, and and they're very present in this this last book for sure. But you know the title "Now I See Through a Glass Darkly," of course, comes from Paul from the Bible, um, and it is your it is um, alluding to this this sense of uh on while in this earthly realm not being able to see what's beyond and um the frustration of that the imperfection of that but there is that line in the poem you know i don't want to be certain don't let me see and i think there's a lot of uh sadness and grief in the book that's not even related to immediate deaths but is also about you know the the times that we live in um and this sense of the world being beyond, um, well, being broken and and that uh, being uncertain uh, is actually sort of a way to survive that uh, or keep the jury out to not completely lose hope. I don't think that the poem is sort of celebrating or arguing toward, you know, confusion. I think my poems are always trying to seize, to be clear. Um, but I think that poem is trying to be clear about how it's hard to combine the subjective and the objective world at that moment. 
I mean, there's a lot more I could say. That poem's juxtaposed with another poem called I Poem, where there's um, sort of a meditation about the iPhone. And there's another poem in there called Medium that's talking about a knocking table and crystal ball. And so these are also sort of, I'm tracking sort of via imagery, these technologies that are always uh, insufficient to help us see or connect with the the other realm, be it the dead or 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 what have you. Um, I think that's in that poem too. I'm wondering of your experience of art talking to itself or responding to other art because you're you're saying that these three poems within this collection are related and maybe they're talking to each other in some way. But I also n- note that at the end of your book, you have all these notes about other poems that influenced you or that you borrowed, like you were just mentioning the Dennis Johnson poem and other influences you, you had. So I'm curious about the ways in which art influences how you write and you write in there, which might be another topic, but I'm not sure, in one of your poems, because you do translation, all art traffics in some kind of translation, which might be another word for conversion. So that seems to also relate to this question. Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, I did very, as I was saying, deliberately um allow myself to use poems as this me as these filaments to to connect to other poets and i did it um you know sometimes very self-consciously some of the poems in the in the book um the titles are actual direct lines lifted from other poems like now i see through a glass darkly which is lifted straight from the bible um Come No Longer Unthinkable, which is the poem right next to that, is a line from W.S. Merwin's poem, finally. So there was a way in which I was sort of tethering or tacking my poem onto another poem as a way to begin and make a connection. And I I was, I did that deliberately and I was, I mean, I don't know exactly why I did it. I just needed to be doing that. In terms of that, those images that I was just talking about, the sort of tracking the images of looking, that was much less intentional. And that's one of the real pleasures of putting together a book of poems is, you know, looking at a handful of poems that you've made over time and realizing they are talking to each other. um, And that subconsciously you are thinking through a given problem or set of problems or question. And you are also resorting to a variety, you know, a, a little a menu of means in many cases to address that question or or a problem um and and that's the case there and and then when you're putting together a book you can decide to sort of call attention to that or um or not and and I was happy to sort of call attention to that in in this case all art traffics in translation that is a whole nother topic we can talk more about but I think in the context of we were just saying about connecting poems with other poems and poets I think that is a version of translation I think translation at its best is the most sophisticated active reading one can do um and a writer and translator I love Andres Newman I once heard him say Translation is the closest you can come to reading and writing a text at the same time, which I think is terrific. And in a sense, I'm doing a version of that with those poems that are, you know, choosing to tether themselves to another poem. I'm not exactly translating them, but I'm Jennifering them at least. I'm 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 throwing I'm giving my try. I'm trying my hand, or I'm at least talking back. And uh, or ventriloquizing some of it, um, and that's you know both a compliment to those those works, but also uh, an homage, a way to try to make sure they stay in the conversation too. So let's let's talk more about this other idea that's in there. It's in another poem that says all art traffics in some kind of translation, which might be another word for conversion. And you are a translator. I think you translate French and Polish. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about this line and, and your thoughts about it. Um, 
Well, I do think um, all art and maybe all communication is is translation. I think we translate to each other, even in English. Um, uh, translation is putting into um, your words or someone <laughs> what someone else said or um, or putting into your own words an experience that occurred wordlessly. Um, in other words, generating language to uh, to capture or contain an experience or or text or event. Um, so, I mean, that's very general, but that's definitely the activity we're doing. And as someone who began, and I still identify primarily as a poet, um, but who's gone on to, you know, I, I pursued a PhD in literature and creative writing. I've tried my hand at scholarly work and moving on also into translation. Um, and now teaching all of those various modes, it's really just become increasingly clear to me over time, over the years, that reading and thinking and looking and editing and translating and writing, these are much less distinct <laughs> enterprises than, than we might um, generally go about thinking or, or saying. I think that they're, they are all sort of modes of this central human enterprise or activity of our brains, of what it is to be human. So I, I find that really interesting um, and, and opening and inspiring. There's something about that that it might not be a direct correlation, but I feel like it's another layer or, or cousin, close cousin of another idea that I saw in your text. And it was a word that you used in a, maybe twice, maybe three times, um, palimpsest. And, you know, that's originally from like uh, uh, some kind of document where the first writing was kind of erased and something put over that. But you can also see that in the universe, right? We see it all the time. Like we can walk into our house and we can see the memory. Say we walk into it, we go to visit our childhood house and we can walk in and see it as it is now. And we can see it as it was when we were 10 and five and three. And there's also a relationship to that idea of time and maybe nostalgia. And so translation, you were saying, like you see two things at once, like the sort of the multitude we hold just walking through the universe. I mean, if you think about it too much, you just might want to be in a dark room. <laughs> well, you don't want to be certain, right? <laughs> you don't want to be the authority on, on what is describing what one sees. Um, I love, I love palimpsests, um, but it didn't occur to me that I have that that's a recurring word, but you're right. It absolutely is. I remember um, one of my majors in undergraduate was art history and, and coming across the way that I first learned about palimpsests was with manuscripts, exactly as you're describing and be in order to be reused, being painted over, gessoed over, whatever, so that, that they could be written, you know, new things could be written on them. And then that happening a series of times and, and either intentionally or because of age, the way different parts um, have rubbed off or been removed so that now when we look at so many documents or fresco walls, or you're talking about childhood homes, like layers of wallpaper, you know, under the, under the paint or what have you, um, that there is this, um, again, bewildering sense of these different versions of reality or different texts, um, literally one on top of the other and all partial that that is so, I mean, no one goes, no one sets about to make a palimpsest, but a palimpsest is a, a really interesting, you know, to look at it in an artistic way is, is really interesting as a sort of sampling of, or these layers of, of time. And I think, yeah, in that poem, Incantation, that you asked me to read a few minutes ago, I talk about that palimpsest of a landscape, and it's exactly what you're describing of 
uh, going back to the same place as you change as a person and it changes as a place makes a sort of existential palimpsest that uh, is is extremely rich and individual um, and unique. And maybe poems, um, or at least these poems that I've been making in this book that are are tethering themselves to other poems, maybe that is, you know, a, a not, you know, an interesting lens uh, to see those poems as well, that they are wanting to carry, you know, rub off some spot to show the line, a line that's lifted from Ammons or or Thoreau or Simone Weil, even if it's not, you know, maybe Palimpsest is just as interesting a sort of conceit as a translation in that regard. I felt like amidst the sense of grief in, in many of these poems, um, was an overall, I also felt like a sense of bewilderment. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but just wanted to ask you, and I can tell you more why, but just wondering. Will you tell me just a little bit more why? So I'll know where. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and I think what I mean by that is that we are born and once we get consciousness and we start understanding with our cognitive brain, what life is, we know that we're going to die. And yet, we're always still kind of amazed by it. It always still takes us back. And there's poems in there, like you have a poem, Marseille, that's kind of about ephemerality and time's passage, but it's told very much in a scene. Um, at least that's how I read it. And you have another one where you're talking about consciousness and you're talking about, you say, I, it's called free fall. And you say, I couldn't understand how a person, a consciousness was a kind of invention, provisional. And that's, I think, what I mean by bewilderment. It, it doesn't mean ignorance. It just means like just kind of a sense of amazement a little bit at like this mm -hmm. life, but also how does this all make sense? Mm -hmm. That poem, Free Fall, is really one of the, I think, most for me, one, one of the most significant poems in the book and and is a good example of that bewilderment. You know, like Palimpsest, bewilderment itself is a word that I that I also really like and tend to use. And it has wild in it to go back to what we were just saying a minute ago. Like if you think about, you know, the it, just breaking that word down to be bewildered is to sort of made wild, right? for a minute by something or disoriented, um, at least not civilized or contained. And you started the question with, we're born and we figure things out, we know we're going to die. Um, and yet we forget about it. All of that's true. But there's also this way in which, I mean, that is all connected that the rational mind um, wants to simplify things. And, and I think a unsatisfactory way. I think the world is so much more complex, at least than what my rational mind sometimes wants to do with it. And one of the things that is so valuable to me about poetry is that it helps me access that complexity and ambivalence and bewilderment that I do sort of, that is uh, a state that I return to more often than not. And I think I do, I think it is part of my aesthetic. Like, again, to go back to that other line you quoted, don't, don't let me be certain. Um, I'd rather not be, I don't, I'm not interested in being right. Um, I'm interested in being in the moment and trying to sort of access something true or accurately and not to sort of project some meaning, you know, I really want to sort of coax it out. I'm a cat person. I want it to sort of like, it to come to come out on its own in its own way. That poem "Free Falls" what I wanted to talk about a tiny bit. Um, that is a another autobiographical poem, wh wherein my I was in France, and my mother uh, slipped into a coma, and the sort of the 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 way in which she herself became a metaphor. You know that. To the dot hearing the doctor explain, you know, she was electrolytes, you know, passing imperfect imperfectly through cell walls. It was so strange to hear someone talk about your mother that way. Um, 
And it made me really think a lot about the literal and the figurative, which I think is the other real obsession of this book. Um, if it, I mean, in terms of what the book poetically is about, because I think all poems are also about poetry itself. And there, there's a lot of meditating in the book about, and a lot of being bewildered by the relationship between the literal and the figurative, which again, the rational mind wants to make very neat and clear. And to my mind is very confounding um, and complex and frankly, bewildering. And so a lot of the poems in the book are definitely meditating on that. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author, poet that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Um, I would be happy to do that. I'm going to read a very short poem by the Polish poet Adam Zagajewski. It's called Transformation. I haven't written a single poem in months. I've lived humbly reading the paper, pondering the riddle of power and the reasons for obedience. I've watched sunsets, crimson, anxious. I've heard the birds grow quiet and nights mutinous. I've seen sunflowers dangling their heads at dusk as if a careless hangman had gone strolling through the gardens. September's sweet dust gathered on the windowsill and lizards hid in the bends of walls. I've taken long walks, craving one thing only, lightning, transformation, you. Do you want to tell me more about why you chose that? Um, sure. I've been, you know, Adam Zagajewski was a dear friend, another poet that um, we lost during the pandemic in 2021, um, and a mentor uh, and and one of my best friends. So he's always on my mind. It was also just his birthday a couple of days ago. Um, so that he's more, even more than usual. But I loved this poem, Transformation. I love this title, Transformation, and this uh, both the way in which it's a poem about not writing a poem. I haven't written a single poem in months. And, and a poet sort of longing for transformation. Um, but I particularly love the ending. I'm craving craving one thing only. And then he lists three things, lightning, transformation, you. Yeah, I think that connection, the connecting those three, um, I don't know, it feels very related to poetry and friendship and love and the whole enterprise that we've been talking about. Can you share something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, yes, I, I, I've been changing my mind about which one I would read, but I think I'm going to read one of the tiny month poems. I thought I'd read that one March. If, I don't have all 12 months, but I have, I think maybe five or six. And here's March. Everything was moving, pixelated, snow splintering down and nestling in the yellow grass. March, a constant darting in the corner of my eyes. Time of year, the world wants us to look several places at once and smell. Mixture of hay and mud, sunlight on straw, and not a scent, but a tickle in the nose while brushing the horse to help him shed his winter coat, hair falling in wisps and clumps, inciting the barn swallow's deft descent from the rafters to pick up a blade of straw, a beak full of hair for weaving a nest that will be soft and warm. All winter, the horse had paid closer attention to me than any human. When I rode him bareback, all I had to do was look where I wanted to go, and he could sense from my seat all the way up my back the slight direction my neck had turned. He weighed 953 pounds. To make him stop, all I had to do was hold my breath. Um, 
it's funny these month poems even march and the next the one after is may there's still snow <laughs> still ice and snow on them because it's rochester um i i was thinking of this one when you talked to, when you had sort of prompted me to a poem that had changed a lot or was difficult i couldn't figure out what i was doing with these sort of month poems and i also this one in particular this was the first one I think that I wrote, or at least the first one where I got the idea, where where I made this sort of month poem, a little mini genre in the book. And I knew that this, ex this experience of being with writing this horse was really special, but I didn't know what was special about it. Um, and I way overwrote the poem. And I, I had a, you know, I, I started with a much more lyrical sort of impulse and I found myself getting more and more prosaic. So I, you know, he weighed 953 pounds. I never would have allowed myself to sort of have a line like that, I think, um, in previous books, but, um, but it somehow wanted its way. It wanted, it needed to be in that poem. Um, and this is a weird poem that I think um, I don't know if it fulfills that Ammon's dictum because I'm not sure if it returns. I feel like it really halts at the end, but I, I found that pleasing as well. Where do you write? I'm actually one of those people who has a writing bar <laughs> that is a secret place that nobody knows. But I also am one of those people who actually writes at my desk um, and by hand. But there's a bar you go to, like <laughs> there is, you know, it's we all know that it's good to get out of your house sometimes, especially if you've been working at the desk all day. What I have found is that, especially as a single woman, it's nice around five o'clock, uh, especially if I don't feel like cooking, to just go out and have a glass of wine and some go to some happy hour where I can have a nice little a light dinner. Um, and I found a I found this bar a long time ago. And the reason I like it is that the bar is very flat. You know, most bars have a lip at the ledge um, and you can't write that way, but this was very flat surface. And I'm always carrying around my poems and my book and the lighting was is pretty good in this bar. And if you go around half the hour time, um, the bartenders there all know me. They they don't mind at all. I don't stay too long. I don't. It's not a. I know it's not a look that restaurants like generally for someone to be spreading out all their papers and a bunch of glasses in their hair, like working madly on poems in the middle of dinner time. But if you go late afternoon for an hour or so, it's a very pleasant place to write or to revise to sort of stretch out one more hour in the workday. Do they have they ever seen your collections? I try to de-emphasize, I try to stay as anonymous as possible, which is not easy. I mean, it, it, it is easy to be an anonymous poet, but it's because I've been going there for years and I've written several books there and translated several books there. They all know, they all, they call me the writer and they do know that they've at least seen the proofs. I don't bring in the book and hold it up for them, but they've seen me work on every stage of the past several books. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, as that last anecdote kind of suggests, I don't generally want to get away from writing. I carry it with me to the bar. Um, I'm normally trying to get to writing, but um, when I do, I guess, cooking and um, going to the movies and being with friends. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, that's a sort of sad question because um, the answer is Jim Longenbach, who was my colleague at the University of Rochester um, for the past 13 years. Um, and he was a great person to show new work to. Um, so I haven't shown anything um, to anybody really since he has died. But I do have I do have other friends that I do show work to and will now rely on more. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I think the the short answer there's is that I've, um, I expect it. I've learned to expect, anticipate it, expect it, maybe even expect it to be the given. And so to be instead surprised by success. <laughs> but I should say my father, um, who was very shy, kind history teacher at the end of his life, 
early in his, in my life um, was a, a tra- an insurance salesman in order to sort of support our family. And he had to make cold calls, um, which were really, I thought, just excruciating. It was such a terrible way to have to spend your time, your hours. And I asked him about it um, when I was in high school and he, he, what he said is actually the real way I deal with rejection, which is, he said, it's a numbers game that in the sales world, they have it all figured out that you will get hung up on. If you make a cold call, you know, maybe 99 times, or or, or you'll get a hundred out of a hundred calls, you'll get 99 rejections maybe. Um, but one person will want a quote or will take, will buy a policy. And so cold calling ends up being worth it because it will generate eventually a quote and a sale. So he said the best thing you can do, you know, whenever I, whenever once someone hangs up on me, Jenna, he would say, I get, I'm happy because I'm one step closer to that hundredth call. Um, and I think that's a great way to think about rejection, that it's built into the formula. And so each rejection is getting you closer, ideally, to the acceptance. And what is your favorite word? Um, well, after our conversation, I'm thinking it might be palimpsest or bewildered. Um, I think I have a lot of favorite words, but I was thinking about the word pixelated, which is a word when I, I used to buy paper hard copy dictionaries. I haven't done that in a while. That was always the word I would use to check the quality of a dictionary. Uh, and I kind of was kind of a dictionary snob in earlier years. Since the pandemic, I don't care about these things the same. But if you pick, not the pixelated that we think of now, like with the E, P-I-X-E-L, not a screen about, about pixels, um, but the older word pixelated, P-I-X-I-L-A-T-E-D, which means um, to be carried away or intoxicated by fairies or pixies, um, which is a really good word to, to find out if, the, if a dictionary actually includes older words. If you like today's show with Jennifer Groats, author of the poetry collection Still Falling, check out my interview with the late James Longenbach, who Jennifer mentioned used to be her first reader. We talked about how we continually become ourselves, finding the poem through language and moving a poem to unexpected places. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rachel Eliza Griffiths, Roger Reeves, and David Vandenberg. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.